0: Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is episode number 80 and I am your host, Brooke McCallery, joined by Ben McAllery.
1: Thank you very much, Miss Lippy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, those intros. Simpson,
1: Simpson references. Simpsons? No, Happy Gilmore. Wow. Wow. You fail. No, Billy Madison. <laughs> you fail. Even more. You fail. But what hasn't been a fail is this podcast, episode 80 with Joel Soslowski.
0: Good work. I like the segue and the attempted pronunciation of Joel's name.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Soslowski? Soslowski. Soslowski. You're very close. So he's a reoccurring guest, our mate Joel.
0: Our mate Joel. It's really nice to talk to Joel on the podcast again, actually. Uh, he was one of the first guests I had way back in the day, in 2015, and... Um, yeah, he's he's just as enthusiastic and um, oh, like joyful as yeah. always. He's just such yeah. a uh, you know a, a pleasant, lovely, intense, quirky guy to talk to. And I never quite know where my conversations, recorded and otherwise, which all are going to to end up. So it's um it's very nice to talk to him. And I, I mean, I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. We do talk. Around a lot, actually. Um, he's quite fortuitously currently working on optimizing his sleep. Yes. So we talk about that. And for anyone who's following along with our current sleep experiment, there might be some little knowledge, knowledge nugs hidden in there. Tip it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um
0: And Joel and I also talk about his interest in sort of reconnecting with nature he's he's always into things joel like he's always really exploring in-depth particular ideas and movements and stuff and every time i talk to him i come i come to these new sort of angles on living a slower and a simpler life and he's so he's currently optimizing his sleep he's also really into the idea of rewilding um and he talks about first of all what that is and how there's you know a different two different sort of branches of rewilding and how uh you know it's impacting his time with his family and the things that they're choosing to do together and uh you know really kind of taking time to connect and you know personally between each other but also reconnect with the outside world as well so uh, i thought that was i found that really really fascinating and he knows i think that you and i like to spend a lot of time outside and we do a lot of kind of bushwalking and stuff with the kids funnily enough actually every time i mention bushwalking on the podcast people are like what is that <laughs> what like, is it Brooke?" it's just like, hike, like hiking but i mean look we go with our kids so it's not yeah. anything hardcore at all but we're lucky enough to live near a national park it's like
1: walking trails yeah walking trails, tracks
0: tracks yeah. trails and the ones that we yeah. do like it might one of our favorites goes to a um like a lagoon in the national park yeah. and you know in some of the kids go swimming in there and it's like it's just it's lovely where we are very very lucky that that's a very short drive away and we've got some tracks that are like a walk away basically yeah. at the end of our street that's it
1: but i love the concept of rewilding and uh, yeah it's a it's a wonderful chat what else is joel up to in his life
0: in his life yeah. well he's he's got his podcast smart and simple matters which uh if you head to his website which is just joel com, which i will include a link to in the show notes at uh, slowyourhome.com 80 you can find his podcast there and also his work with simple rev so for a couple of years joel ran an in-person event uh in Minneapolis and this year he's really looking to kind of take that simple living event and uh, kind of expand it into a community space so they've got a simple rev community group in minneapolis but they're also expanding into other cities around um, the states and other countries as well so if you're interested at all in maybe starting a a local simple living group where you can get together with people who are like-minded and who is working towards the same kind of goals head over to simplerev.com and get in touch with Joel because he's got a whole heap of really wonderful resources to help you get set up and you know get things underway and Joel is he's always like I said he's he's inquisitive and and curious and exploring things but one of the constants with him is this idea of community. Yeah. He talks about it a lot and uh, we, we talk about it a bit. I'll also include a link in the show notes to a conversation he had with Jeff Sanquist, um, where they basically unpack the whole idea of community and why it's so important with simple living. Um, because I think Joel really that's, that's his biggest strength and his, you know, his passion is, is community. And, if you're keen to, to know more or to start your own group, definitely get in touch with him because he is a good guy. He a is cracker. a good guy.
1: He's been a champion of the show for yes. a, as long as we've uh, – well, how long ago? Well, sort of Since we started, now, yeah, I in guess. April
0: 2015. Well,
1: yeah. well, more than he – so um, Joel's a really good guy. There's also a lot of you really good guys out there that uh, have kindly donated through Patreon and support the show through that. We really appreciate it. And we're going to, in the coming months, do something different in regards to, to Patreon and offer um, something extra for those that um, want to support us. But if you want to get in on the ground floor, please do so at patreon.com slow and we would be very Grateful. appreciative yeah. of any financial assistance to help this
0: show remain viable. Absolutely. But, yeah, we are working on some, you yeah. Oh, know. Yeah, well, I don't want to give too much okay. away at the moment. Some secret little projects.
1: For our loyal listeners.
0: But in the meantime, thank you for, thank you for listening. And being here, and enjoy the pogpast with Mr. Joel (music) Zaslotsky. Hello, Joel. Hey, Brooke. Good morning. You?
2: I am super duper how's your general well-being
0: my general well-being is uh, fabulous actually no no complaints at all
2: all right I'm trying to deliver some sunshine through the airwaves to you and to everybody else who's listening
0: so you guys are in springtime
2: we are and it's a lovely spring here in the Minneapolis St. Paul metropolitan area in Minnesota
0: nice um yeah, send some sun, sun, sunshine. Our, uh, our sun hasn't yet risen, so that was some sunshine. It'd be lovely, particularly the Joel variety. You always bring bring a lot of happiness when I talk to you. <laughs> I do a lot of smiling. You do.
2: I have a very good life. There's lots to be grateful for and lots to smile about. It's pretty easy, actually, the uh, smiling part, yeah. not the being grateful part. That's still hard sometimes.
0: Yeah, it is. I mean, I didn't I didn't intend to start talking um, on this particular topic, but it can be, can't it? Uh, even though we, we're aware of everything that's wonderful in our lives it's still difficult to practice gratitude sometimes
2: yeah that's why i just make it a ritual Mm. otherwise i'm going to forget or otherwise i'm going to downplay the significance of it and it's only in the last two or three years when i've as weird as this sounds i have a very operational brain but I, i i systematize gratitude so that it happens it's automatic. It's, a, it's like a habit, like anything else that I'm doing. Whether it's at the dinner table with my family and we all talk about one thing that we're grateful for, that's our ritual. Uh, in the morning when I'm doing my meditation, at the end I'm sending gratitude through the mental airwaves to other people. And I built it into my day, my week, my month, my year. There's certain times, some are triggers, others are just naturally occurring. And the, I found that the, it, it seemed forced at first. Mm. Like, I shouldn't have to rely on a reminder on my Google Calendar to tell me <laughs> to be grateful at 8 30 in the morning. But as a, after I got past that point and as it got to the automatic stage, I found myself just spontaneously being not just grateful, but more intensely grateful more frequently throughout the day and the week because I had started with that base of systematized gratitude, as uh, clinical as that sounds.
0: No, but I mean, I used to, I used to think the same thing that, you know, if we, if we make it like a ritualized approach to gratitude, for example, then it would, like my fear was always that it would be, become a mindless thing, you know, um, how rituals can, can sometimes, I guess, if they're repeated for years and years and years, become mindless. But I actually find the same thing. It becomes more ingrained and not in a, not in a, a mindless kind of way, but more of a, uh, I guess an ability to slip into that more spontaneously. So, like you say, you're aware of it; it's on your radar, and then you're able to practice gratitude, um, you know, far more regularly and, and you know, I guess, in a a less systematic kind of way. Yeah, yeah.
2: I guess it's it's a good byproduct. I guess I didn't start there, but I'm here now, and I'm grateful for it,
0: <laughs> which is good.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness! So, People know that I'm silly, right?
0: Um, look, I think so.
2: <laughs> okay. If they listen to our, our first episode together, they'll they'll realize that I tend to get a little bit silly sometimes.
0: I don't, I don't find you silly. I find you like, endearingly left of center, but I don't find you silly. That is the
2: nicest thing that anyone said. Oh, wow. <laughs>
0: Thank you. That's quite all right. Um, so speaking of, of kind of slightly left of center things, you always are into, you're always super into things like you're exploring new ideas and new practices and stuff like that. And in the lead up to our chat, we, we emailed back and forth a bit and you mentioned a few things that you're really exploring at the moment, but one of them is sleep optimization. So by the time this episode uh, releases, we should be maybe one or two weeks into next month's slow home experiment, which is actually eight hours of sleep a night. So I'm super curious about sleep optimization and what, I, what do you mean by that, first of all?
2: Well, eight hours a night, that's wonderful. And a lot of people are gonna hear that, Brooke, and they're gonna think, that's great for you, but I could never do that. Mm-hmm. Or why would I want to do that? I'm doing great on my four to five hours of sleep. And tr- I used to be there. Back in my 20s, and I thought I was Superman, and I could stay up until 3 o'clock in the morning playing video games and then wake up at 6.30 and be just fine. I wasn't. I was impaired. At some points, I was just zombie, just shambling around the corporate office or around my apartment with my wife and uh, wasn't really... Engaged. I mean, I was there, but I wasn't really there. Mm-hmm. And sometimes sleep can make the difference. We talk so much on your podcast, on mine, and on other places in the soul living community about being mindful and being present. I think the biggest shortcut to that is sleep.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Your body demands that you give it the kind of substance and the kind of maintenance that through our evolutionary history as humans that we've always had we've always needed you know we've developed in this way uh there's there's a functional role for sleep in addition to some more symbolic and spiritual roles all that to say uh, i have a <sighs> difficult history when it comes to sleep <laughs> in terms of not prioritizing it not seeing the value of it but now when i think about all of the various things that i want to optimize in my life relationships simplifying uh, sleep is way up there as well. And I realized that it's an amplifier. If I if I do well with sleep, I'm going to be able to do well with everything else in my family, in my work, in my spiritual life. It's just going to magnify and amplify everything else. And I mean, that's, that's conjecture. If you hear it, you're like, oh, that's great, Joel. But there's so much science. There's so much research. And there's so many anecdotes and case studies that are available now that cites its it's a non-negotiable. Every human needs a sufficient amount of sleep. And that's going to vary depending on who you are and where you are in the cycle of your life. But that is a huge thing that I try to optimize these days.
0: Yeah. it's. Um, I mean, it's an, a really kind of s- a sticky issue because I think people, and I've been this person for a long time, I would, I would absolutely tell you that I was fine getting six hours of sleep. And we would We would give up sleep in the name of everything else uh, to the point that we didn't, we, well, I didn't feel like I had control over how much sleep I could get. It was just what I would sleep for the time that was remaining, you know? And I think um, there's a two kind of fold issue there where people feel like we don't have a lot of control over. The amount of sleep we can get partly because there's just so much else going on in our day and we don't have enough time for eight hours of, of rest but the other part is people you know they'll lay in bed and they can't get to sleep you know they feel mm. like they actually have very little control over when they go off to sleep and how well they sleep so what do you what are you exploring in your day to day to kind of help you optimize that sleep what sort of practices are you are you engaging with
2: Well, I just read this great book by one of my favorite podcasters, a guy named Sean Stevenson. He's got a podcast called The Model Health Show. And he republished an updated version of his book called Sleep Smarter. I just finished reading that about a month ago. So I'm actively experimenting. I'm not doing slow home experiments along with you and Ben, although I, I will in the future. I'm just not doing the ones right now. but. This book, Sleep Smarter, talks about, and this is the problem too, like sleep's hard. Yeah. It should be just like, I close my eyes and then eight hours later I wake up. No, it, it often doesn't work like that because there's so many variables at play. How much sunlight did you get? Did you exercise and the timing on that? What kind of food are you putting in your body? Like your gut, Your and this is, I'm just kind of regurgitating things that I read in Sleep Smarter and there's more to it than that. But when you think about it from a, from a physiological perspective in terms of the hormones that are released, there's so much new research about how we can sleep better. And serotonin, which is the predecessor to melatonin, the thing that gets us to sleep and helps us stay asleep, 95% of that is created in our gut. So if I'm putting a whole bunch of junk in my stomach, a whole bunch of sugary crap, which I've been known to do, I'm going to pay the price. Maybe not that night, but some other night. Uh, If it's wicked hot in my house and it's the middle of the summer and I can't cool it down to an optimal 62 to 68 degrees Fahrenheit, I may suffer to some extent. Uh, If I can't calm the chatter in my brain before I go to sleep, I might sleep well, but if it takes me an hour to fall asleep, then my sleep quality is going to be great, but my quantity is not going to be great and I might miss a, a sleep cycle over the course of the time which is going to throw off things the next day and just put me in this constant sleep deficit. So I'm looking to optimize everything from how dark it is into my room to timing to how how much meditation I do in the morning or whether I meditate in the evening. There's a lot of stuff at play right now.
0: Right. And as you say, I mean, those things are all going to look different for the individual person as well. I mean, there's no kind of magic bullet for, for getting the optimal amount of sleep in the optimal environment, I suppose. But Um, Yeah, that's it's really, really fascinating. I've actually discovered with the meditation um, experiment that we did in May, that if I meditate in the evening, and there's possibly a reason for this, I find it much more difficult to get to sleep. Um, I'm not sure if you have a similar kind of experience, even, even the meditate, like the guided meditations that are designed to put you in deep sleep. I find they actually wake my brain up. So for me, meditating in the morning actually leads me to having a much better sleep in the evening. But, um, yeah, it's, it's amazing trying to, to work out what is impacting our sleep and, you know, in what ways as well. Uh, particularly for me sugar and uh, you know just an overall improvement of our diet has certainly helped as well um, what what are what benefits are you finding for yourself I mean are you finding that your sleep is improving
2: no <laughs> that's the problem too <laughs> okay. is I see the benefit or I see the value in it but I'm not actively realizing the benefits of it and that's been the story of my life for the last six plus years ever since i started you know all these crazy experiments in my personal renaissance way back in 2010 uh, when i got into minimalism when i got into the paleo lifestyle uh, a lot of people were asking me so so what like what was wrong and i told them well nothing necessarily was wrong. Things were pretty good. I just saw that there was an alternative way that made more sense to me or that so many friends that I knew were doing it and they're smart, so maybe I should give it a shot too. Uh, it's the same way with sleep where I-, I can't tell you objectively. I'm not hooked up to any new machines that are measuring my hormone levels or how patient I am around my children or anything else like that. Um, I just know That if I want to be the best version of myself, if I want to make my highest contribution to my family, to my local community, to the world at large, I need to do good by myself by optimizing my sleep as much as possible. So whether I ever consciously feel the benefits of it, they're there when I treat myself with the respect that I deserve, um, regardless of whether they're invisible or intangible or however they manifest.
0: That's, that's actually really fascinating to me because people often say the same thing about practicing mindfulness, even just, you know, quiet sitting or meditation. Like, I can't feel the benefits. But what science is, is starting to show is that those benefits are there, but we may not be aware of them at all times or at most times even. So it's I think there's... A certain, I guess a certain level of, of faith that those changes that they that we're making are having a, a positive impact. And sometimes I'm accused of being, um, you know, a little too easy on the placebo effect. You know, I'll, I'll meditate for a week and say I'm, I'm feeling amazing and my patience has improved and my sleep has improved. And people are like, where's the proof? Like, well, I don't know if I need proof necessarily. I just it's, – it's how I'm feeling. And, uh, you know, I believe in the things that I'm experimenting with for similar reasons, as you say, you know, smart people, people far smarter than me who I know are talking about the, the impact these changes are having on their lives. Why not try them? Why not be open to the fact that they're going to have these, you know, wide ranging benefits?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. What we're trying to do, I think, is create an identity for ourselves. Yeah. Where regardless of what the outcome of that identity is, we're comfortable, we're confident, we realize the benefits of it. And whether it makes us a better partner in our relationship, whether it makes us 10% more productive, whether it makes us metabolize food uh, 8% better, (laughs) a lot of these things are, I won't say inconsequential, but that's not the point. That's not the reason why we're doing it in the first place. The reason why we're doing it in the first place is to try to adopt the lifestyle, to try to create this identity that's in alignment with our values and with our goals in life.
0: Yeah, and that's a a huge theme that, that comes through in so many of the conversations that I have is creating a life that's in alignment with our values. And I think, I mean, the big part of that is, of course, understanding what your values are, but then doing the work to understand the actions you know, we, can, we can take and the, the changes that we can make that mean our life is actually in alignment with our values. And I'm finding that so many of these changes come down to self-awareness. I think, um, you know, Ben and I've had a lot of conversations lately about our ability to pay attention to, you know, the way our actions or inactions affect how we feel and think and act. Do you find that self-awareness sort of plays into to the changes that you're making and the ability to make those changes?
2: Yeah. It doesn't just play uh, a role. It is. It's the foundational force. It's the pillar upon which everything else is built. Because if I don't know myself, then I can't set a conscious, intentional direction with my life. If I don't know what kind of contributions I can make to the world, whether it's helping people simplify or bringing people together or just bringing a smile to someone's face and, and just being around for the sheer entertainment value of, oh, here goes Joel again. Oh, goodness gracious. of I get a lot of the, the eye roll, but the smile at the same time, like, oh, boy, Joel. Uh, <laughs> it, being able to know, well, one... So here's here's part of self-awareness too. And this is situa- situational awareness and relational awareness too. When I I have a big personality, so I can overwhelm people, especially if they're introverted or highly sensitive people. I'm so much more conscious of how someone is what kind of energy I'm projecting, how that's impacting the people around me, if I need to tone it down a little bit, if I need to adjust my communication style, maybe I just need to shut up for a while. All of that is based on self-awareness. So it makes me a better human, it makes me a better friend, uh, it makes me better at everything. And I'm certainly no self-awareness expert. Uh, Meditation helps, and I've been doing that for a year and a half. I'm up to almost 30 minutes a day, first thing in the morning, which is really cool. Uh, total hat tip to my buddy Christopher Carter over at This Epic Life. He was the one who finally convinced me that I needed to start meditating and gave me a lot of the tools to make it a regular practice. Um, yeah, I, I would imagine for, uh, when it comes to self-awareness, the thing is, it's so nebulous, right? Like, mm. How do we conceptualize self-awareness? And it's kind of like sleep is how do I know, the more aware I am of my tendencies and my personality, about how people perceive me, how does that benefit me? A lot of times you can't really put two and two together. And that's why I feel a lot of people don't focus on that is they they just simply don't see what it's going to get them. But what it's going to get them, again, isn't necessarily the point of doing the practices that add to your self-awareness. What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I think um, I actually think that it's it can be a really painful experience, particularly if we're not if we're not. I'm thinking of myself when I was younger, wasn't necessarily aware that I was hyper self-aware, which is kind of ridiculous. But, uh, you know, and it was painful and the constant questioning of um, myself and how my actions were impacting others and how I was perceived by others. And it was, it was you know, cha- really challenging, particularly growing up and particularly as a, a young adult. It's only been the last few years that I've realized that it's actually, a, you know, for me, a strength. It's something that leads to change, and it leads to me being able to make these changes that we're making over the we've been making over the past few years. Uh, and it's absolutely worth it. And I, I also never realized that for a long time, a lot of people weren't living with the same kind of, uh, you know, self awareness umbrella over their heads, where everything was questioned and everything was was kind of taken on board and, and judged and weighed and, and valued. So. I think it's um it's something that I'm fortunate to have tapped into when I when I did and but it can also it can also very quickly become all consuming so I think it's got to be balanced out by outward thinking and you know thinking much more about people around us and how we can help them and what can we what we can do and that's something that I love about what you do you're always thinking about how you can help people, how you can connect people, what you can do to serve the community. And I think that's where the balance of self-awareness, you know, lies because otherwise it can be a, a like a lot of navel gazing.
2: Oh, totally. Yeah. You can be literally inside your own head yeah. all the time. And then it becomes all about you. How am I feeling about this? How am I perceiving things? And a lot of times, Uh, we contribute the most the best by making ourselves other centric by being generous (laughs) i wasn't i wasn't always this way for the first 30 years of my life i was pretty darn selfish and sure you know i volunteered and sure i was a good friend in some ways but a lot of times i didn't genuinely care or my motives for calling somebody weren't altruistic they weren't pure now i at least I can say for the most part that they are. There's still some things that I do that are selfish that may have uh, an ulterior motive. But even those ulterior motives I've noticed as I've shifted from a selfish to a selfless life, those are still pretty good. I, I think, at least in my own head. And being that community oriented person, being that person who connects folks with others, I've gotten to this point myself where I've cultivated this identity and created this personality where I can't not do it. It's just so fundamentally a part of who I am that if, I, if I'm if i not doing it, I feel like there's something wrong. Mm. And, and I like, yeah, it's just, I don't exactly know how to explain it, but I do get this sense of too much time elapses and I haven't help bring people together, whether it's a neighborhood block party or through Simple Rev Local or through other things, there's this little thing that goes off in my head being like, hey, Joel, um, I-, I, thought, I thought we had an agreement here. Like, <laughs> I thought that we said it was non-negotiable that we were going to bring people together and you're not doing that. So do that thing, okay? Do you ever get those inside of your
0: yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I get them. (laughs) I don't think mine are nearly as bubbly or kind as yours, though. Well, what do you get those on? What
2: makes your brain kick into like, hey, we're not doing that thing or it's been too long since we assume this identity that that's who we are. That's fundamental to who we are. And why aren't we doing that?
0: You know, I, I really find it happens with my family um, particularly our kids and Ben. And when life happens, you know, and, and life, it always happens, but when life happens in a like a heavy kind of way, those things, those values that we've kind of created our life around, sometimes they, they slip and I'm not as present or we're not as spontaneous or we're not as adventurous as I'd like us to be and we're not instilling those those kind of values that, that I'd love to see, you know, reflected in our, our kids, they just, they have fallen by the wayside. And like, I'm, I'm hesitant to say that because in comparison to how you connect people and are so generous with your time, I feel like that's still such an insular little response to give, but at the moment that's really where, um, you know, where I find myself getting those, those kind of brain kick moments or the, um, like the, It's a sort of a a lurching feeling in my gut when you're like, hang on, this is not like we are not doing the best job we can do in living in accordance with our values. So that's probably the, the biggest thing for me.
2: When you haven't explored, when you haven't had an adventure as a family in a period of time. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and also, but just, and I think more than anything, it's the, like, it's that's the present time that we spend together. We spend a lot of time together at home and we, we do as, you know, we do as much of that in like an intentional present kind of way. But when we're exploring, when we're adventuring, when we're doing something, it's just us and we're all in and it's, it really does revitalize us.
2: I get that. And I'm, I'm starting to get more like that. Just this past weekend, so I have a five-and-a-half-year-old son. His name's Grant. And maybe he's in preparation for our chat, Brooke, and knowing how adventurous you are and how much time you spend outdoors as a family. So on Saturday, there's a natural spring. We filled up uh, eight-gallon jugs with spring water. Uh, on Saturday, I took Grant over there. And there's a path by the spring. We've never explored around there. So before we filled up our jugs, we walked up the path. And I just told Grant, I said, I have no idea what's up there. I don't know if we're going to be gone for 10 minutes or for an hour. Let's explore. Let's stop and let's see what kind of sticks are on the ground. And let's fashion a crude fort out of mud or try to dam up the little creek, at least partially a little bit. Let's let's just play. Let's explore a little bit. And that felt so good. And then the following day, where there's some nature trails by my house around a lake. And we did a similar thing where the two of us, Clark, my, my youngest son, was with my wife, Melinda, and they were happily doing their own thing. But Grant and I, we just went through trails. There was a fork in the road, and who knows where it leads. We're just going to have a little, our own private little adventure as a family, just the two of us. And it was so wonderful, so wonderful. And influences like you, you know, reading books like Last Child in the Woods and some other ones just really make me recognize that even the things that are not current values of mine or that are not top of my mind, they're still really important. And how do we integrate those into our lives while not allowing everything else to suffer? I don't have a good answer, but I do try to experiment, especially through exploration and especially outside more and more because of all these really cool
0: influences. Yeah, I'd love to talk to you about that a bit. And you're the second guest in as many days who's mentioned Last Child in the Woods to me. So I'm adding that to the top of my my must-read list. Um, but I think, I mean, just going back to what you said, I mean, how do we live according to those like top-of-mind values but then these things that are still important, how do we make time and space for them? For me, I don't think it's necessarily about it even being like a, a regular uh, a regular part of our day but when we do it we're, we're all in you know we just we explore and we enjoy it and it fills that particular bucket and that bucket might be smaller it might take longer longer to emptier than others and you know kind of just pulling it in when we feel that that need to to in your case get outside and explore or uh you know just take the other the other fork in the road and see where it leads i, I love the idea and the like the practice of exploring and not Knowing, and I think our kids actually they, they pick up on that they pick up on the fact that we are doing something together that is new and different and no one knows where we're going and like not in a not in a way that makes them feel unsafe but in a way that makes them feel like they're explorers with us like in Canada one, one of the biggest things I noticed was that you know the hiking trails and things there, pretty loosely marked and it's much more open for exploration and there's no signs and and railings on on, at least the hiking trails that we took uh, saying do not climb here or do not go up here or this is not, you know, this is not the way. And it was so invigorating, I guess, to explore that way because in Australia everything is so well marked and so heavily um, you know heavily boarded up so that everyone remains safe and uh, you know it's of course I understand why but it was it was just a really lovely experience to be somewhere that was much more wild and much more free and open and you know our kids were bouldering up, up the mountains in you know in Canmore and stuff like that that just it, you just don't see that happen very often in Australia so to explore in that way was was absolutely invigorating
2: That's really cool. And when you're doing that, when you're on the mountains and every once in a while, if it's safe enough, you can allow your kids to lead you. Yes. How often do you give your kids an opportunity, not just to symbolically, but to physically say, go, like you show us where to go. You set the pace. You show us where the next path turns and where the adventure leads. That is such a powerful thing to give our kids that responsibility uh, and that temporary power to they're the pack leaders <laughs> we're we're following and they get to determine where we go and how we go and whether we take that turn over there i try to do that more and more and relinquish my need for control which i think that's just a very human thing but also when it comes to my family and balancing safety with just okay fall down and get wet or skin your knee or whatever no big deal like well <laughs> let's all do it together. And I'm not going to intentionally make myself bloody, but kids are messy and life is inherently messy. And it's really fun. But some of the messiness in life, when we don't feel the need to have the pecking order in our family be so tidy, when we can blur those lines and allow others to take the lead.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's just like a physical manifestation of the fact that I've learned so much for my kids and if they learn half as much as as they've taught me in the last seven years of being a parent i'll feel i'll feel like pretty good but you know i think allowing them that power and that that control even temporarily i think is it's wonderful and it's fun as well kids are so much less inhibited than adults and they don't care if uh should we be going up there does that look like a thing that's safe you know they just go and i I want to adopt more of that into the way I live. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, And I think, excuse me, that goes back to this other other kind of thing that you're really into that I'd like to explore a bit is of rewilding. And I know we kind of touched on that. But as a movement, can you explain what rewilding is and what it means to you or have, have we basically just done that?
2: No, uh, we've barely touched on that, actually. Uh, rewilding is a topic that I've become just fascinated by. So, fa- And I'm, I'm easily fascinated. So I tend to go down rabbit holes and, oh, new idea, new concept, new relationship. I, I, I think of it as a blessing, actually, how easily fascinated I am. But as far as concepts and ways of life and thinking go, there's actually the way that, that I perceive it, rewilding, is uh, there's two types that I'm familiar with that I've explored. So there's the personal and there's the environmental. And there's two people who kind of represent each side. So on the personal side of rewilding, there's this guy named Daniel Vitalis. And wow, uh, just wow, first of all. And he talks about honoring our ancestral practices to thrive in a modern world. Uh, awakening our instincts, freeing our bodies and minds from what he calls the degenerative effects of domestication. What he's really after is he wants to see he wants every human to see themselves as a sovereign creature that's not under the thumb of the worst parts of civilization and the institutions that decide what our civilized life looks and feels like. So, you know, I'm paraphrasing here a little bit so that people can get an understanding of what I'm talking about on a more practical level, but. Daniel talks about this error that he made when he was first starting to study nutrition. He had, he's such a master in analogies. He talks about, he went and asked the zookeepers how to feed the human animal. And he uses this parallel where if we, wanted, if we found a wild chimpanzee and we were now responsible for it and we wanted to figure out what was best for it, will we take it to the zoo and ask the zookeepers how the domesticated chimpanzees live and what they eat? Or... Or will we look at how that wild chimpanzee lives and try to replicate that lifestyle as opposed to seeing what the domesticated, the captive chimpanzee leads? And in a lot of ways, we as humans, uh, we're we're asking the zookeepers how to take care of domesticated humans, not looking at what our ancestors did Mm. or what evolutionary biology or archaeology can teach us. So making that conscious choice to... Rewild ourselves, as opposed to I mean, there are so many ways where invisible and visible, where we have agreed to domesticate ourselves. I, I don't own a Japanese. I <laughs> never will, but I own a dog. Her name's Lucia. She's awesome. She's a Samoyed, and just like I can look back at my ape family ancestors to inform how to create a life for myself, I can look back to wolves, Lucia's ancestors, and I can create a good life for her.
0: Right, and. I mean, (laughs) there's so many places that that we could go with that. And what are you you doing personally to adopt some of that into your life, like just for you and then also for your family as well?
2: Well, one of the things I already mentioned is spring water. Mm -hmm. So I don't exclusively drink spring water, but 15-minute drive away from my house, there is a a spring and it's tapped. There's water that flows even when it's the wintertime and it's freezing. That water is still flowing. And if you think of your body almost like an aquarium because there's so much water that's in it, think about, so many people think about their nutrition and their food and what they're putting in their bodies. What's that other thing that we're constantly putting in our bodies all day, every day? It's water. So instead of, and and I have nothing against municipalities. I live in the city. I love the city. But instead of thinking about how can I get eight ounces, you know, eight glasses of water a day from the city, from the tap, which I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but it's scientifically proven there's chlorine in there, there's fluorine. Me, where I live, there's probably hundreds of trace elements of pharmaceutical products that are in my tap water. If I can get something from underground that's been pure for a thousand years and that's coming up to the surface and it's free I'm going to go there and I'm going to use that water, which will literally become my blood and will give me life and, and in my, inside my body. That's one way that I've thought about this concept of rewilding and how it personally applies to me is trying to get more of the water that I consume and my family consumes from a natural spring as opposed to from the tap.
0: That's, I mean, that's, that's so cool. <laughs> that That's something that is within 15 minutes drive of you. But also – uh, something so essential and, you know, literally vital to to your everyday kind of life and, and your your health and your wellness. So, I mean, I think that, that puts a different spin on it for me because you can really start thinking about it from every aspect and it doesn't have to be a huge sweeping change but rather rethinking how we can, uh, you know, change, I guess, the way that we're living within this environment and to start to adopt some of those wilder aspects back into it. Is that also uh, part of your, you know, you're exploring more and spending more time in nature and spending more time just outdoors and in- enjoying that? Is that part of a, the same idea for you?
2: It is. Yeah. Yeah. I can get a double whammy or a triple whammy in terms of how many great things I can have going on at the same time. One, I've got quality time with my son. Two, I'm going to get spring water. Three, we're gonna go on a little adventure that is unplanned and spontaneous because there's that trail over there and hey, where does that go? So the, the real thing is that's underlying it is, how am I going to extrapolate what has worked for 99.99% of our history as humans to thrive in the modern world based on that deep understanding of our role as an animal in nature. Because we are animals. A lot of times humans don't think of themselves as animals, but we are. And that's, so that's one part of it. I want to get to this other concept real quick about environmental rewilding. This is George Monboit's concept. Uh, there's another great book called Feral Wow, that book just blew my mind. He's uh, probably most famous for being an opinion columnist for The Guardian. And I've been following his stuff for a couple of years. But Monboit's version of Rewilding, it's very different than somebody like Daniel Vitalis, where it's about looking at the past where Monboit, he wants a surprising future. He's not trying to restore an environment or us as humans to a specific point in the past. He really wants to see a a landscape or a seascape that there's this term that he has, which is self-willed. It's not driven by or micromanaged by humans. And he makes this amazing case for environmental rewilding. And one of his concepts from the book, there's this thing called shifting baseline syndrome and it kind of goes a little something like this. So every generation, like you and I, Brooke, we're of the same generation. So when we look out in the world, whether it's outside of our door or at the rainforest in the Amazon or the state of fisheries on the coast off of New Zealand, we think that there's a certain way that things are. That's, that's the natural way. Every generation feels that the state of their ecosystems that they have in their childhood or at a certain point in their um, development, that's normal a lot of things that we have to realize is fish or other animals or ecosystems, they've been decimated over decades and centuries. And all these activists, all these well-meaning scientists, I mean, people who I support fully, they are calling for the restoration to numbers or to a state that existed in their lifetime.
1: Mm.
2: But what exists in their lifetime, there's that shifting baseline. If I went back 100 years and I asked my great-gra- great-grandmother, what should we restore the earth to, her concept of how many birds would be flying around or what kind of flora and fauna would be running around in her area would be so different than what we think of. So that's something that I try to keep in mind is how is that shifting baseline impacting what I feel the world should look like or what the base level of fish or deer or birds or anything else should be.
0: And I think that's uh, one of the fundamental difficulties people have with any of these Kind of, particularly when you're talking environmental. I mean, we, we also talk about like restoration as if uh, going back is the only, the only real positive solution. And I think that in a in a society that's so dead set on moving forward and in innovation, it's a real tension. I think to to come to this. This understanding that we need to go back, but in every other aspect of life, we continue to go forward. And I, when I was speaking with James Wallman, um, I asked him about this this sometimes this feeling of hopelessness I get when I think about, you know, what we're doing to the planet by overconsumption. And, you know, uh, is it is it completely hopeless you know, and that's on my worst days and he simply said well no because humans are intelligent you know and they they can they have the ability and the innovation to create something better and to create a solution and i think it's a really interesting kind of tension between the idea of just letting things be as well you know if we just <laughs> left huge great chunks of land and let them find their own baseline how different would that look to what we would do Right. Mm. But it's
2: not just the land, too. It's the sea. Yeah. And um, that's the majority of our Earth. And our demand as humans for seafood, the continental shelves, they're trawled. Think about the trees of the sea, all of the life forms on the bottom. If we were to destroy the rainforests at the rate that we destroy the trees of the sea, which is at 150 times, 150 times the rate we're destroying the forests of the seas as we are on land... You know, every year, half the global continental shelf is trawled. So Mm. I'm hopeful, but at the same time, I realize that with each additional year that passes, there is a possibility not to restore, but to create some kind of new normal, some new environment. It's just going to take longer and longer for nature to be self-willed again because of all the damage from nets and beams and rakes and chains that are just dragged over and over That's the kind of stuff that concerns me that makes me want to take action as opposed to just sit back and say, hey, let's let's conserve this area and let's nature let's let nature recreate the landscape or ecosystem that it wants to do, even if it doesn't look anything like the past Mm. that we think of. That's where the tension lies for me. And I don't have a good solution for it. I just know that it's a huge problem and one that's urgently needed to be addressed.
0: So what, I mean, what, what actions personally have you taken to, to kind of try and lessen your impact and also understand, I guess, the impact that we're all having?
2: Well, one of them is just fighting against the enclosure of everything. Yeah. Uh, enclosed, the commons are such a big part of... Uh, What's good in the world, shared space, shared resources, and the fact that so many things are privatized and enclosed, sometimes literally with fences, whether it's on land or in the water. So every time that I can push back, whether I need to go to my local city council meeting and they want to, there's a golf course that's now going to be turned into a mixed use area. Well, what is that going to be? Is part of it going to be for uh, commercial residential apartments? Is part of it going to be for something that doesn't allow everyone in the community to access it and to enjoy it? It's going to be uh, enclosed in some way. So that's one of the ways, both in where I live and just around the world, where I'm always looking to expand the commons, the physical space that we share, that we come together, uh, and also symbolically, too, on the internet in terms of... Uh, there's so many different ways that we can stop people from engaging and from connecting and from consuming. So how do I open that up? How do I make things more open source? And how do I as an individual in terms of the creations that I bring forth into the world, how can I make sure that I can preserve some of that common spirit, some of that collaborative, let's all come together spirit? And part of that is my podcast and i've been doing it for four years and i I, like you i love patreon i love making it optional if people want to give me a little something uh to say hey thanks uh a drop in the hat wonderful but i'm i'm dedicated to things that really uh enliven things that expand as opposed to things that constrict and enclose
0: one of the, the biggest themes of of your work and your podcast uh, is community, I think, and that's exactly what you've just summed up there. But if you could sum up what what it means to have a, a strong community, what it means to a person to be part of that, uh, what it means to you actually to be a part of a, a strong community or, you know, multiple strong communities, what what does that look like for you and what does that bring? you just just before we kind of wrap up i'd love to know because the community is something that i've learned a great deal of from you and get inspired inspired to to continue to build when i talk to you so
2: oh man this is hard to do in a short period of time i'm going to give it a shot so when i feel like i belong somewhere that i'm in community that feeling of community i have a sense of ownership that i'm co-creating something with other people who are also stakeholders because if you if i give a crap then I'm going to invest in that thing. If I give a crap in the community, then I'm going to invest in it. I feel empowered that I can make a change, but that my change is bigger the more of us that are involved in working towards a common goal. Um, for I, it's, I, I've almost been a student unofficially of community for the last four years and reading books and following blogs and doing all these things, but really uh, for, just kind of For me personally, community is when I'm building something with other people, when I'm investing in someone else and also getting something out of it. But that's not why I do it. I'm just getting it as a byproduct of investing in others and trying to enrich others' lives. It's messy. (laughs) It's inefficient. Uh, There's misunderstandings. Oftentimes people are angry. These are all things that uh, people shy away from community. Because you're dealing with other humans Mm. (laughs) and we we are messy. (laughs) We're irrational. We don't show up. A lot of it is based on volunteerism. Uh, You can't compel somebody to be in community. You invite them to be in community with them. But when I'm there, when I feel that sense of belonging, I know that I'm related to this group. I'm related to this place in nature. I'm never isolated that I can depend on others and they can depend on me, that we are codependent but in the best sense of the word in that where we go, how we thrive is based on how we come together, not how we create our own individual bubbles and don't go out them or don't go out of those bubbles. So that's the way that I conceptualize community and try to help other people think about it as well is not something that you have to do. Oh goodness, I gotta go walk down the block and say hi to Mildred again. She's 93 and she doesn't really hear very well, but she's the sweetest woman and she has so many gifts and stories to offer. We need to allow Mildred, whatever, whoever the Mildred is in our life, to, be, to come from the margins, to come from the outside and to welcome that in and to share whatever they desperately wanna give. Community is such an amazing place for people to share gifts freely. If only there's a way to know what they are and a way to distribute them within it. Mm. And that's, those are the best communities that I'm part of that acknowledge people's gifts and allow them to freely share them.
0: And here's to the Mildreds of the world.
2: Oh, I love Mildred. She painted her own house last year. 92-year-old Mildred up on that ladder. If you try to help her shovel her driveway or mow her lawn, she'll just shoot you a look like, no, 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 no. I got this, dude. I got this.
0: Oh, Mildred sounds amazing.
2: Yes, I like her too.
0: Um, I, I like. I, I really love what you said at the beginning of that answer. You said when, when people understand a place when they give a crap, they're going to be more invested and I think there's so much in that you know if you can just get people to care about whatever it is you know in that community that you're looking to to serve people are engaged with something if they care then they they're far more inclined to act and I think for me that's one of the the biggest and best benefits of living a you know a slower simpler life you have more time and space to care about things and then Mm. you know you have more time and space to be invested and to maybe start to to become part of the community and i know you and i could talk about this for hours at you know at great length but um your have you released your 100th episode of smart and simple matters I have. Congratulations. So I Thank would you. Um, highly recommend that people go and listen to that and then your entire back catalogue for, for a lot more, you know, your thoughts on community and how to build it and what, what that looks like. And then also you recorded an episode of Intentionally Wandering with Jeff Sandquist who's been on the show before where you guys talk at great length as well about community and what that looks like so for mm-hmm. people who want to hear more of your truth bombs about you know community they should definitely go <laughs> check those out but joel it's as always, a, an endearingly left of center pleasure to talk to
2: you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much for inviting me on the show. I, I want other people to think as they leave too, gra- Brooke, I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for who you are, what you represent, what you create, how you help people. Um, and if people are done listening to us, hopefully they can spread some thanks, some gratitude around wherever they are, whoever's closest or whoever needs it the most today.
0: Thanks, Joel. for your ease. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.